Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor quality industry. Today's broadcast is episode 133 on Friday, July 17th, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes is uh, commuting back from West Virginia from projects, so we're not sure if he'll be in today or not. The lovely Ann Koalecki is now a married woman. Congratulations, and she's back from her honeymoon. Thanks, Cliff. Good to be back. Okay, and the wingman Chris Boisel is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with Dr. Felicia Changerulo, some comments by technical director Dr. Dieter Weil, and the roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman's help, have been working on the iaqradio.com website each week. Uh, We add a blog and some comments after the show. Please check it out. We've also changed the invitation and news announcements for IAQ Radio and IAQ Training Institute. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease's first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. You can also download the show from iTunes. Remember, you can get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, to make a special request or ask technical questions, 
you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffslotneck at unsmoked.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you can trust at ieqtraining.com. All right, I guess it's trivia time, Chris. Remember, you can win a cool prize by outcompeting IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffslotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, July 17, 2009. The question is, we want you to name the five ways in which bacteria may be classified. All right, now over to our guests. Good afternoon, Dr. Felicia Chancherulo, and welcome back to IQ Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Chancherulo received her doctorate in molecular biology, microbiology, and genetics from the University of Pennsylvania, and currently is a member of the faculty of Carlo University. She's also an adjunct professor of biology at Mercy Hospital School of Nursing, Community College of Allegheny, and Duquesne University's Milan School of Pharmacy. That's a post-baccalaureate doctor of pharmacy program. Previously, Dr. C worked with the Environmental Protection Agency, Environmental Response Division Office of Research and Development on the isolation, development, and validation testing of microorganisms as a synthetic seawater inoculum for Tier 2 and Tier 3 methodology for oil spill remediation testing. She's also worked with the U.S. Department of Defense in designing a novel microbial system for the selection and acclimation of microorganisms exhibiting targeted biodegradation of explosives contamination. She's excited about her research at Carlo University in the fungal contamination and remediation of water-damaged construction materials and the development of synthetic sludge formation to be used to standardize key soil components and contaminants to develop a national soil standard for testing and remediation to assist in remediation efforts after natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Ivan. She's also pursuing research interests in the environmental impact of acid mine drainage in non-approved and trout-approved waterways. All of her research projects are student-centered, and she invites student participation. When she isn't teaching, she serves as senior research scientist at FLC, Scientific and Technical Consulting, a firm which provides testing analysis and review of medical and legal documentation for private clients, public agencies, and law firms. And she also acts as administrator for the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, and that is a nonprofit trade association founded to provide educational opportunities for companies engaged in restoration, remediation, and cleaning of burned, flooded, and damaged facilities. Do we have any intro music for Chris? Well, my cousin, the common cold, is incredibly old. Sneezing, coughing, hacking are the symptoms we're told. But a good old dose, you see, from a kid who's only three, will make every parent wonder what they did to deserve me. I'm a germ. I'm a germ. I'm a germ. Well, I'm a germ. I'm a germ. I'm a germ. Well, I'm a germ. I'm a germ. A very healthy germ, I'm a germ, I'm a germ. A very healthy germ, I'm a germ. I'm a germ, I'm a germ. 
Okay. Welcome, Doctor. Thanks for joining us. It's easier in the studio than to call in. Um, when did you get interested in germs? Um, I, I would venture to say that I've always been interested in germs, microorganisms. Um, it started when I was very young. Um, the fact that you can't see them and that they can cause you know, good things and bad things. <clears throat> was there a defining moment in your life when you decided that microbiology was the field for you? Actually, it was in the sixth grade. And uh, my teacher introduced us to a micro, microscope. And I came home, and, and that was the beginning of, of my career in microbiology. Um, can you tell us about the ways in which bacteria can be classified? Well, there's multiple ways. Um, you can do it by shape. Uh, you can do it by um, morphology. You can do it by uh, whether or not they're aerobic or anaerobic, um, gram-positive and gram-negative. Most bacteria fall into one of those two categories. There are a few that are different. Um, whether it's autotrophic or heterotrophic, whether it uses uh, a carbon source or sunlight, it photosynthesizes. And then uh, at the more um, high level, you could do uh, DNA analysis, which is really the definitive way to classify. You know, it seems that you and water and sewage have been somewhat entwined uh, during your career. Can you differentiate for the listeners between the different types of, of water? Sure. Um, potable water is also called clean water, and that would be water originating from sources that do not have additives, contaminants, or large numbers of pathogenic microorganisms. And some examples would include broken incoming water lines, overflow of tubs or sinks from incoming water, melting snow or ice that has not reached the ground, and broken toilet tanks. Gray water uh, contains biocontaminants. It can also contain fungi, bacteria, vir viruses, algae, and or protozoa. Um, the water will also contain nutrients that the organisms can use as a food source. Um, it can cause discomfort and sickness in humans. Uh, some examples would be discharge from dishwashers, washing machines, aquariums, waterbeds, overflow from a washing machine, toilet bowls with urine only, and some pump failures. If left untreated for 48 hours or longer, uh, gray water can turn into black water. And black water contains pathogenic agents and results in an unsanitary condition. Uh, it usually contains or may contain silt or organic matter that is visible, and it many times is contaminated with pesticides, heavy metals, or toxic organic substances. Um, even though these are called gray and black water, color is not an indicator. Um, it's the level of contamination that um, would uh, definitively uh, um, identify which water it is. And some examples of black water would be um, water that contains sewage, uh, toilet backflows originating from beyond the toilet trap, and all forms of flooding. What sort of bacterial agents would be commonly found in black water? Uh, organisms in black water. Um, 
you would have uh, certainly bacteria, the enteric bacteria, which are those bacteria which are normally found in the intestine. So E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella, Proteus, Pseudomonas, Campylobacter. Um, if it's soil related, you may have Bacillus, uh, Thermoactinomyces, Saccharopolyspora, Thermomonospora, those are fungal species, and then the viruses, rotavirus, hepatitis A, adenovirus, Norwalk type agent, echovirus, Coxsackie virus. You would also have parasites, Giardia lamblia, Cryptosporidium, Entamoeba histolytica, Ballantinium coli, and you also may have uh, roundworms and flatworms. And um, the rule of thumb is 70 to 75% of all human beings are um, infest, infected with some type of a worm. So um, look, look at the person next to you because one of you is probably has some type of uh, worm infection. And remember, we shed these organisms. If they're in our body, then we shed them. And when there is a sewage-involved uh, incident, then those organisms are available to infect another individual. You know, what are some of the health effects of uh, these pathogens that are found in the water? Well, it, it can range from severe diarrhea, dysentery, gastroenteritis, a liver inflammation, respiratory and eye infections, amoebiasis, which is a form of dysentery, uh, allergic asthma, allergic rhinitis, hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, burning eyes, skin irritation, nausea, headache, fever. Scary stuff. Yeah. In your opinion, are waterborne organisms more likely to cause serious health problems than fungi? It depends. It depends on really the level of microorganism or fungal contamination. Certainly some individuals are very sensitive to mycotoxins. Uh, and, and they can be sensitive even when they're in very low amounts. Um, with organisms that are in the water, uh, it has to reach a certain level. We, all of us can fight off normal levels or very low levels of these organisms, but in a flood or a water incident, they're going to have the organic matter that they can grow, and, um, and you don't really need a lot of them in order to make an individual sick. You know, Doctor, you'd mentioned uh, endotoxins. Um, how would we test for endotoxins or mycotoxins, which would be fungal-related? And how would these samples, be it mycotoxin or endotoxin, be analyzed? Well, if, if the best way to do that would be liquid chromatography or high-performance liquid chromatography. You could also use gas chromatography. That would be the definitive way to test, and you could see what components um, are in the mycotoxin or the endotoxin. If it's an air sample, um, you can easily do that and, and check for mycotoxins. With an endotoxin, an endotoxin is a toxin that is not released from the bacteria but remains in the gram-negative cell wall. So you would have to actually have an actual sample of the bacteria and you would rupture them, and then you could test for the toxin. Doctor, what is the mode of bacterial infection? There's many different ways that uh, bacterial infection can occur. It can occur from inhalation, um, ingestion, um, piercings, you know, if you have a wound, 
um, an abrasion. Uh, it can be foodborne, waterborne, um, really um, a vector-borne, which is by an insect, um, and person-to-person -person and food con uh, contamination. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, the modes of bacterial infection. Could you, I guess, tell us, you know, you've used this word endotoxin, mycotoxin, you know, they all have the suffix toxin. You know, what exactly is a toxin? A toxin is a substance that is really poisonous to the body, and it can cause a, a wide variety of uh, health of problems. There are neurotoxins, there are aflatoxins, um, and, you know, it can cause everything from you know, muscle paralysis to uh, more commonly you would have asthmatic reactions, hypersensitivity reactions, uh, skin irritations. And, and there's two types of toxins. There's an endotoxin and an exotoxin. An endotoxin, as I mentioned, remains in the cell wall of the bacteria, so you actually have to come in contact with the bacteria. An exotoxin is released from the bacteria and so you don't necessarily have to come in contact with the bacteria. One of the best examples of an exotoxin is from Clostridium botulinum, and that releases the toxin which causes botulism, and it's also what's used in Botox. Hmm. Okay. Um, what, how would you define the word bioremediation? Bioremediation is using organisms that are indigenous to a certain environment and using those organisms to degrade uh, harmful contaminants into uh, non-harmful byproducts. Do microorganisms suitable for bioremediation occur naturally or are they genetically engineered in laboratories? They, it, it's both. Okay. Um, ideally, uh, you, there are several approaches you can take to bioremediation. You can use genetically engineered microorganisms. Um, the approach I tend to take is to use the organisms that are actually found at the site of contamination. Many of these organisms cannot exist without each other, and they have developed this synergistic consortium, and they feed off the byproducts of one will be used as a food source for the next organism. So it's, it's a very complicated, um, it's a very complicated microcosm that they have uh, developed. And so if you work with them and you acclimate them, you can basically ha get them to degrade almost anything. <clears throat> and that would include, um, you know, explosives contaminated material, uh, oil, crude oil. Um, there are some that degrade uh, toxic heavy metals. So they're, they're very, um, adaptable to any environment. Are there any specific strains that have worked best for you or look promising for use in the future? I usually don't separate them out by strain um, just because when you do that then they don't grow and then they won't um, they won't acclimate as well but certainly the organisms that you're gonna that you find in the soil um, like bacillus and, um, and also the enterics. The enterics grow very well um, and they're, they're present everywhere. So Enterics mean? It, those yeah. found normally in the intestine. In the intestine. Yeah. I was going to, where do you normally search for these at or where are some of the places that you've 
pick them up or go on to look for them? I normally go to the site. So, um, for example, with the explosives contaminated material, I went to the military base and isolated the soil there um, and then brought it back to my lab and worked with it. Um, with water, uh, I've gone to different um, you know, oceans and picked up the water. It's important that you handle the organisms correctly. They can't get too hot, they can't get too cold, and so um, it's best to go and get the sample uh, in person. You know, when you were working in your laboratory with the soil that was contaminated, you know, from the Department of Defense, this, this explosive stuff, how do you know that you're making progress and how do you know when you're not making progress? Well, what you do is as you begin to train or acclimate the microorganisms, you add a known amount of contaminant. So, for example, if it's uh, not TNT. And so you measure it using high-performance liquid chromatography or gas chromatography. You measure how much of the original sample is still present and what are the uh, resulting byproducts. And so that's how you know whether the organisms are acclimating. And sometimes if you use too much, then you will kill off the organism because they're not, they're not ready to take on that uh, contaminant. You know, I, I would suspect that um, in order to eat, well, I, I guess the question is, in order to eat up something really, really, really hazardous, um, would you have to use a bacteria that's also really hazardous in order to do that? No, not at all. Um, probably non-hazardous material bacteria are the best because they're so hardy. Um, those are the organisms that normally help us. They grow very quickly and they will use anything if you give them as a food source. Ultimately they will change and adapt uh, their metabolism so that they can use that because then the ultimate result would be death. And that's what's nice about bioremediation because if you train these organisms to eat, to eat certain contaminants, then the goal is when the contamination is gone, then the organisms will die. Um, in your life, do you do anything to, you know, help your body? I mean, do you eat yogurt or do you eat raw food or do you take probiotic uh, products, uh, you know, to kind of help you? Are you a believer that those things are beneficial to? Oh, I, yes, certainly. I mean, I, I mean, yogurt and, when, and the advances they've made with yogurt, that's probably one of the best products um, on the market. Um, so, yes, I do eat yogurt. I take vitamins. Um, but I don't really, um, I mean, I, I don't have a, a different diet than anyone else, but I, I do believe that that's extremely important. You know, you had mentioned a couple of experiences that you had with bioremediation. You talked about the, um, you know, the weapons. Have you had any other experiences? Well, we worked with the uh, developing a synthetic seawater inoculum um, for the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and now that is used as a standard um, for when individuals are developing products. They can use these different tiers um, as their product goes through the efficacy tests. Um, other bioremediation, uh, what I do currently now is um, more in the fungal area and um, trying to find a more holistic way of, of examining what organisms, what fungal organisms grow on what types of 
um, drywall and gypsum? Um, let's see. I actually have a question that was texted in, and uh, I'll let you read it and answer it if you can. Is the concept of natural attenuation considered complementary to, or is an al alternate definition for, bioremedi for bioremediation? And how are these measured in comparison? Well, natural attenuation is going to occur, uh, the bacteria will do that. What, what does that mean? Natural attenuation means that they will um, acclimate themselves based on the environment. Um, and, and certainly that goes, it, it parallels bioremediation. Many uh, situations will bioremediate themselves through natural attenuation. Targeted bioremediation is when you take these organisms and you attenuate them and then expose them to a contaminated site. So the, it, bioremediation does occur with natural attenuation. So would you say that's kind of what happened in, Ala in some parts of Alaska after Valdez um, that, you know, that, that are looking pretty pristine now and we really didn't do anything to, to those areas? So that occurred by natural attenuation? Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right, well, I guess we're about halfway through. Why don't we bring in the good doctor and uh, get his comments on the first half? Dr. Dieter. All right, I still like that Beethoven stuff there, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I uh, are there any, one of the questions I have, and I've been struggling that for years uh, when I was over at the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh on sampling for bacteria. Uh, and I'm not up to date on that at all. And uh, I'm well aware that you can't, I mean, you can uh, sample bacteria on a membrane filter, whether it's Teflon or whatever else it is, that doesn't matter. But, of course, it will dry out in normal air, and uh, it is not viable anymore. I guess you can identify it under the microscope, and you have to have a very good eye or a very well-trained eye. So are there new or are there a better ways available today to sample for bacteria in air? Well, one of the things you can do is you can pass it, especially in air, you can pass it through the filter, but what you can do so that the organisms don't dry out or die is you place that filter then on um, a, a media which contains auger. Now, what's nice about that is you can select a specific type of auger or media that selects or differentiates certain types of bacteria. So by, by any selection method, um, you can either enhance, for example, if you want to grow bacteria versus, and you want to inhibit fungals, uh, you would grow them on a, um, a pH that is around 7 because fungi don't like to grow at 7. They would grow it. Correct, yes. And so by, by selecting the media, that's really the best way to, that's your first step in um, coaxing or identifying which bacteria that you have. Yeah, well, I remember I worked with a couple of bacteriologists at the school, and that was always our question. Yeah, what the heck are we going to do? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, <laughs> I just sit down. First of all, you 
you're, you're hired to do a job, and they tell me what's in the air, uh -huh. and then you have to say, hmm, now, let's see, what do you think is in the air? Right. So you got to make a hell of a lot of decisions before you can do the sampling. Well, and and uh, that was one of our problems, and... Uh, well, you can always take two or three samples at the same time and uh, then hope for the best. And there's also another uh, thing that you can do, you know, if you want to save the samples, there's multiple ways of, of freezing the bacteria. So if you want to have the sample on hand, because time is, of, of, is, is very important because they really don't like to Ab be... Absolutely, yes. And so when you freeze them... The problem. If, uh, if, if, I, if I catch... Uh, a mold spore on a filter and I put it in my pocket and I analyze it a week later, who cares? You know, nothing is happening there. Correct, right. But bacteria, they, they don't, they don't uh, uh, agree with us that nicely. No, they do not. Yeah. Okay. But I think the, the other thing that is, that is very important, and I think, you, not, I think I know you mentioned that, you know, fortunately, fortunately, most of these bugger bacteria uh, in the air are yeah, non-pathogenic, and they are just going for the ride, and they don't really do a lot to us. No, you're so, right. Uh, that is that is kind of interesting, yes. But it, it's it's quite enlightening when you when you do a sampling and you see just how much is really in the air that we breathe. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. Anything that's, else? That's, that's all I have for right now. Okay. Well, we'll come back to you in the roundup if we may. So just uh, just hang on. Let's shift. The, let's shift over uh, to some of your research work. I mean, I understand that you're doing some modeling work in the lab where you're simulating the effects of catastrophic flooding on drywall, and you're trying to develop an understanding about uh, fungal colonization species at different humidities and different temperatures. Can you tell us? Uh, you know, what you're doing there? Well, a lot of this came out of the um, hurricanes, Katrina and Ivan. And, um, you know, there, there's many different ways that construction material or home materials can be exposed in a, in a flooding incident. It can be quick, for example, if a waterbed breaks, or in the cases of hurricanes, uh, that water is, it's black water and it sits because it's the, the damage is so widespread. And so what we're looking at is we're trying to mimic the effects um, of different types of flooding incidents and see if there's a difference in um, the uh, pathways that the fungi um, are, are colonizing. Um, there, there is evidence that there's a, there can be a um, definite pattern in the ways that uh, fungi colonize. And so again, it's that synergistic consortium. And so that's what we're looking at is, is altering humidity, altering temperature, but also, also altering the time that the water is being exposed to the materials. Can you tell us about your research into acclimating organisms to respond to different contaminants? <clears throat> it's it's really it's really fascinating when you when you work with these organisms. Um, you you start out, you know, you, you, you obtain the sample, and then uh, very very slowly you have to be very patient. Very slowly you introduce them, and as you introduce them to the contaminant, you take away some of their food. 
when you norm when you first get them you give them all the food and all the nutrients that they want and that they can use and then you slowly begin to take that away and replace it with the contamination and so and then you can measure it so you can measure what they're doing with that contamination are the byproducts uh, non-hazardous byproducts or are they toxic byproducts and so it's it's a long process but um, it's usually very successful you know I'm aware that you're working on a synthetic soil for use as a test standard uh, what can you share with our listeners uh, about that again this this came out of um, the hurricanes Ivan and Katrina and one of the problems that um, individuals have is which product will work best um, and again we're, we're going towards the bioremediation but sometimes a product needs to be used in order to um, enhance uh, cleanup and you really don't want to use um, things like bleach on a, on a large-scale um, incident it just wouldn't be cost-effective so what we have started to do is um, develop a synthetic sludge um, that can be used as a national standard. What typically is done now when people want to test a product as to whether or not it will um, appropriately clean is they just take the soil from their area or from a stream and it's very uh, varied across the country. So if someone's testing something in California and there's a flooding incident on the East Coast, that product may not work on the soil from the East Coast. So what we have done is um, we took the um, target mineral concentrations and texture results from the National Soil Survey Laboratories data, and we selected one county from each state based on their need for flood-related disaster assistance as listed by the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And we looked at the different soils and we came up with a, uh, a standard that we're working on um, that is an average of all of these different sites. So it contains clay, uh, sand, and silt. And then what we're doing is we are contaminating it with malorganite, which is a uh, sewage-derived product. And then we're also looking at the, um, the minerals that the EPA uh, suggests are the most common in flood incidents. And those would be your aluminum, ammonia, nitrogen, calcium, chloride, magnesium, manganese. Um, and what we're trying to do is take products that may be or mo are most likely going to be exposed during a water-related incident, such as gypsum, um, uh, wood products, and we're trying to um, contaminate our standard soil and now look for the ability of that soil um, to be used as a standard for product testing. What other types of um, contaminant in that water would you be interested in? Would you be interested in petroleum products being, I mean, and pesticides or fertilizers or? Absolutely. Uh, with Katrina, there was a, a there, when they did the analysis, there was a lot of petroleum-based products. We're also going to have pesticides. Uh, arsenic is another one because of treated wood. Um, and then you're also going to have your microorganisms, which, again, when you think about bioremediation, 
um, using a, a, a very hazardous or a very harsh uh, product actually would kill the good bacteria and the good fungi that may um, help in the bioremediation effort. Well, it looks like I've got another text question in there. If you want to give that one a shot. Do sulfur-loving bacteria selectively catalyze sulfate compounds any faster in the presence of increased moisture, oxygen, or a combination of the two? <clears throat> it would depend on the type of bacteria. There are anaerobic sulfur-loving bacteria, so, and they also love moisture, and you would find those in the thermal vents deep in the ocean. There are also other sulfur bacteria that are aerobic, and um, again, they do need moisture. So wh whether they would catalyze it faster, certainly they would love to be with sulfur. Um, but it depends on whether or not they are an aerobe or an anaerobe. Uh, use these terms, aerobe and anaerobe. Can you define for the listeners what, what sure. they are? An aerobic uh, microorganism is one that requires oxygen for growth. You also have things like micro or aerotolerant, which they don't really like oxygen, but they'll survive in it. And anaerobic bacteria, by the true definition, means that it will be killed in the presence of oxygen. So it does not thrive in oxygen. But then you also have things called facultative anaerobes. And those are organisms that would prefer to be in an anaerobic or oxygen-free environment, but they are not killed when oxygen is present in low amounts. Um, let's, you know, I, I kind of like this basic information because I think it, it, it's really good for, for the listeners because we have people that live, uh, listen at a variety of different levels of proficiency. Can you define what a spore is and tell us why they would be important in the field of restoration? There's actually three parts to the, the spore question. There's spores that form in bacteria and not all bacteria form spores. Bacillus, which is a soil bacteria, forms spores. A spore in a bacteria is called an endospore and that forms when the bacteria are under unfavorable conditions. Those spores can live for months, days, decades until the conditions become favorable and then the spores will germinate and form what's called a vegetative cell, which means it's actively metabolizing and reproducing. A spore in a fungus is not an endospore. A spore in a fungus is a reproductive structure. Uh, it still can um, cause problems, but it's not reproductive. And then the third type of spore-like structure would be a cyst, and that is very important with water uh, contamination and cysts form in some protozoa, such as Giardia lamblia, and if you ingest between one and five cysts, uh, an individual can become violently ill. Um, and then the cyst can also, uh, and when conditions become favorable, it will germinate into the protozoa. Amy? Yeah, doctor, I'm curious, what is a bioaerosol? A bioaerosol is any substance, pathogenic or non-pathogenic, that can be released into the air. And that can happen um, either from natural sources or from production sources. It can also happen just from talking. Um, 
you know, desquamation of the skin, anything that uh, would um, cause a, a release of a substance to go into the air. So sometimes um, it can be um, in the gas phase, but a lot of these organisms are going to be carried on what's called fomites. And fomites are inanimate objects. And certainly um, in air, there's a lot of inanimate objects, meaning there's a lot of particles. So that's uh, contributes to the bioaerosol problem. You know, many of our listeners do remediation work, and what I'd like to do is get your comments or suggestions or recommendations on uh, protective measures that workers could use out in the field. As far as personal protection goes, uh, you know, if they're doing sewage remediation or mold remediation, what would you recommend that they protect, or how would you recommend they protect themselves? Well. You know, and this is one thing, you know, people that are in the in the field, uh, they do take precautions, but one other thing with a homeowner is, you know, it's your home and you have a flood there, and, and you know, a lot of times people don't take the precautions. But some precautions that I would suggest would be to uh, wear chemical-resistant gloves and boots. Um, one of the um, strangest things is people forget about their nail beds, and that's the cuticle area. And that undergoes a lot of um, tearing during the day, and that's a perfect environment for um, bacteria to gain access. I would suggest uh, splash goggles or a face mask, uh, a respirator with a HEPA um, or organic vapor cartridges, rubber boots with a hardened shank, and protective clothing. Have you ever heard of an organism called actinomycetes? Actinomycetes, yes. It's a bacteria. Okay, cool. All right. Um, let's see. How about a tip for homeowners? You know, you told me about a really nasty place uh, in the home that's commonly overlooked. Could you make some comment on where that place is and how you kind of found that place? Well, uh, amazingly, uh, there was a study done in western Pennsylvania about five years ago, where they sampled people's washing machines. And in 50% of the washing mach machines, there was fecal contamination. So um, your washing machine is a source of fecal contamination and microorganisms. And, and you know, one of the best ways to, get to, to remedy that is occasionally just do a, a, a cycle with no clothes and uh, a high level of uh, Clorox if you want to, you know, feel better about it. Interesting. Uh, let's talk perhaps a little bit about your expert witness type work and inspection work that you've done. Uh, any interesting cases that you've worked on that you'd like to talk about there? Um, you know, we don't need to mention names. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Um, you have to be careful in this field because Especially with the with the fungi, there are these um, the MVOCs, which are toxins that are released from the fungus. And like I said, some people are very sensitive, and others are not sensitive. And it's you. So and this is where we go with the sick building syndrome. Some individuals will complain of headache, nausea, uh, hypersensitivity reactions, and others. You can't smell these things, and you can't see these things. So it's, it's hard to test. And in some cases that I've done, um, you know, whether they were a, it was a legal case, uh, 
you know, the question is, does this individual really have the effects from the um, contamination and the toxins that are released? Um, just because of confidentiality that I probably can't go into the details. Okay. Doctor, what's your opinion on antimicrobials? Antimicrobials, um, well, they, ha they certainly have a purpose um, because there are times when it is, you know, very time sensitive that you remove these microorganisms. Um, so there, there are cases where they're necessary. However, um, what we're finding today is people are overusing antimicrobials and children are not developing um, a fully uh, exposed immune system. And so, you know, this constant, you know, wiping everything off with an antimicrobial sometimes isn't a, isn't a good thing because the immune system has to be exposed. And when these, when these children then go into daycare or they go into school, all of a sudden they're exposed to all these different organisms and they get sick a lot. So, but antimicrobials are extremely important, but overuse is also a problem. Um, at home, uh, what do you wash your hands with? Do you use regular soap? Do you use hand sanitizer? Any kind of comments on that? Actually, I make my own soap. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> and uh, just because it's, uh, I find soap a little bit harsh. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, you know, just based on what I do, I use uh, I use soap that I make. Use a lot of it. Um, and I really don't use an anti uh, back. I don't use anything antibacterial just because. If you look at your skin, we have organisms that are indigenous, and they are very hard to get off, actually. They have developed with us, and their presence keeps the harmful bacteria from um, colonizing. Um, you know, it seems that there's a big push on hand sanitizing. If you visit someone in a hospital, um, you know, they have you doing that. If you go to daycare centers and if you go into schools and restaurants and, and so on and so forth, they seem to have um, these hand sanitizers and I think most of them tend to be uh, alcohol and I'm mm -hmm. not sure that people really even use them right. Uh, you know, when they use them, you know, whether they have long enough contact time and so on and so forth. Do you think that the use of this, um, you know, is beneficial or superfluous? I I, I certainly think that in an, in an atmosphere where there are multiple people, um, not, in a, not in a home, especially in a school or in a hospital, um, we all carry viruses and organisms. And so if, if you use um, these antimicrobial sanitizers, um, it's a good idea. It just prevents the transmission of disease, which is especially true when you're in a hospital because the individuals are immunocompromised anyway because they are recovering from an illness. Um, could you kind of summarize um, some issues that remediators, uh, you know, should, should think about in doing remediation work? You know, again, you have to be very careful. Um, we do live in a litigious society and I have had experience where you know someone's trying to do a good job and trying to remediate something and and um, th th there's always a liability so that's always a very big concern today 
Um, my, my suggestion, which I tell people, is always interview the residents and take time and interview them to determine what measures have already been taken. Remember, if it's in a home or a business, it's, it's a bit of an emotional situation, and so they may not remember everything that they did, but based on what they did, it could be very important in how you remediate. Um, I would always have a environmental consulting firm at your disposal, and I would have your samples tested by a reputable testing lab or through a consulting firm, and make sure that you will be provided with an analysis of the results. Some companies will just provide you with the, uh, the data, but they don't give you an interpretation, and you need the interpretation in order to understand what steps you need to take. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, other protective measures that um, remediation workers should take. Um, one of the things that you, you should be very proactive in is, is in, in immunization. Um, individuals who work in this um, environment should be uh, vaccinated for hepatitis A, hepatitis B, tetanus. And another one which is interesting is polio. Now, most people over 35 have been vaccinated uh, against polio, but for a while there was a loophole where individuals were not uh, vaccinating their children, and polio is in the air around us. Just because we don't get it doesn't mean it's not present. And you can, um, it's one of the organisms that you need to be careful about in a water-related incident. Okay. Well, I guess it's time for a roundup at this point, Chris. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Dieter, back to you again. Well, a couple of interesting things that brought back memories. My mother made our soap <laughs> when I grew up in Germany in a little village where there were no shops, no water, no electricity, no gas. You had to go out and shop uh, uh, woods to do that. And if you had to make soap, you had to make your own soap. Miraculously, uh, I, I, I survived all of that. I never ever got vaccinated. I didn't know what a doctor was. There wasn't one around in 50 miles or something like that. Uh, but uh, interestingly, I, uh, I'm, I'm doing quite well considering my age, uh, my, my replacement knee not to mention, <laughs> which gave me trouble. Um, but uh, no, um, the, the, the other thing is, is that vaccination thing? And uh, I, have, I have several questions about that. And I, I, I certainly, I'm not an expert in it. I just observe and I just read a little bit. And they found out in England where they have, quote, socialized medicine or assisted medicine or whatever you want to call it, you can do epidemiological studies there very nicely because you have a lot of people 
who are in the uh, pool and uh, you know what is going on. Miraculously, they found out that people who didn't get vaccinated against, quote, everything, uh, had fewer allergy problems and other problems. And, you know, Mother Nature, Mother Nature has a damn good way of protecting us. And I sometimes think that we overwhelm the system with some uh, drugs, with some vaccinations that um, uh, may not be right. You know, I made my own antibodies. They are tailor-made by my, by my body. Miraculously, even though I never, ever got vaccinated against anything, I have antibodies against everything. And I never, ever remember having chicken pox or any of that. And I said, oh, yeah, you had them. They were subclinical. So that is another whole big question where we have to take a look at the total population and see what we have to do. I'm pretty sure one of those studies will not be sponsored by one of the very rich uh, drug companies. No, I think you're right about that. Playing in the dirt at the farm, I think, might be a... That's the best. Hey, that's, that, that, that peck of dirt is damn good for you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're you, right. You can't, put, you can't put yourself in a, in a bubble and say, you know, zero exposure is perfect. Uh-uh, it isn't. We know that. After many, many years of study, we found out that a glass of red wine is good for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Andy. And, um, you know, you just, I mean, that, that zero thing uh, 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 doesn't excite me, and which is not to say that we should take care of our air on the outside and air contaminants. I'm very, I mean, I'm just, yeah, I was facetious before. I mean, I'm very well aware of that, and I think we ought to keep a good eye on this, and it is not a good idea to throw everything into the air or, for that matter, everything into the ground. And uh, the, the garbage that we are producing is just—it's just, just mind-boggling, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's there. It's in our environment. Sooner or later, even though you put it into a, a, a sanitary landfill, uh, it's still there. <laughs> That's the problem. Annie, I'm wondering what your opinion is on this. I had a microbiology class back in college with a fairly influential teacher. And his opinion was that when a baby is born, the child should, and I paraphrase, he should Im immediately go to in a horse manure. I wondered if that's a little too extreme. I, I, that is quite extreme. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, as a child, in a natural childbirth, as it goes through the, the vaginal tract, that's the first colonization. And so um, that's a bit extreme. That's what I thought. <laughs> because the immune system isn't really fully developed until age two. So, which is why children can't eat honey before that because of the fungus spores that are naturally in honey. Yeah, but Thank how you. come honey doesn't spoil? It's one of those things that you don't have to, um, it keeps for a long, or, or it might spoil, but it keeps for a long time. Well, it's just because um, it has a high sugar content. And if you notice, jellies are the same way. Bacteria, it's, it's almost like curing. So you would use high salt or high sugar and that prevents bacterial growth. You know, I know that you have, you do a lot of training with remediators and so on and so forth, and 
you have these three C's that you, uh, can you tell the listeners what the three C's are? It's kind of good advice, I think. Well, the three C's are always be careful, uh, be cautious, but foremost, be concerned. Be concerned for yourself and the workers, but also be concerned about the individuals who are going through this uh, incident. It, it can be quite traumatic. And so by following the three C's, I feel that it helps to uh, be successful. Um, how can our listeners um, learn more about you? How could they contact you? Um, yeah. Uh, do you have an email? Yes, or? I do. Okay. It's uh, Felicia, F-E-L-I-C-I-A, at F, as in Frank, L, C, S, as in Sam, C, I, dot com. Okay, perfect. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time today. Is there anything that we didn't ask you that you wanted to be asked? Um, is there anything that you'd like to comment on? I always like to give the, the guests the last word. Um, no, I, I think that this was, it was very, uh, thorough and, um, you know, if, if I can, if I can be of any help to anyone, uh, please email me and, uh, you know, we can see where we can go from there. Perfect. Okay, Chris. Um, you know, before we sign off, I'd like to thank, uh, our special guest, Dr. Felicia Chancherulo, my co-host, Radio Joe Use, environmental and Koalecki, uh, the wingman, Chris Boisel our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Let's thank our sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Drys Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Drys is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Welcome to IEQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.